Coming up on Tech Nation, the explosion of medical information and how it could work for us in the future. I speak with Dr. Eric Schott, the Dean of Precision Medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the founder and CEO of Semaphore. Then on Tech Nation Health, a vaccine to treat Alzheimer's and potentially prevent it. Dr. A.J. Verma from United Neuroscience tells us about how and why it might work. Then Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the age wave. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Here's a great my credit card got stolen story. I went to Mexico and upon arriving at the airport, picked up my rental car from a major company. I used that credit card that one and only one time. Several days later, I started getting texts from my credit card company, who I'd called beforehand and informed I was going to Mexico. They asked, did I charge this? Did I charge that? The answer was no, 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 and no. I called the fraud representative and we canceled the card and determined it would be too cumbersome to send me a new card since it had to go through customs. We decided to simply mail it to my home in San Francisco and I would validate it when I returned. A week passed and as I was literally packing, another flurry of fraud alert text messages regarding charges in Mexico appeared on my phone. The last digits were new to me, and they were the numbers on the new card. Gas charges again, and no, no, no again. When I called the credit card company, I told them that the new card was sitting unopened in my mailbox back home, and I certainly hadn't activated it. I didn't even know the numbers on the card. I couldn't have used it to charge anything in Mexico or anywhere else for that matter. And there it was, plain as day. The credit card hadn't been stolen in Mexico, but rather made to look like it was stolen there. This was an inside job. One of the aspects that was so slick about this experience was that the fraudsters knew where I was and that I had rented a car. Charges came from gas stations, one for $150 and another for $225. Not insignificant, and to the untrained eye, totally appropriate. Of course, I had charged the airfare, so they knew about that too. Upon reflection, it took context to make the charges believable. And then I remembered that I had called the credit card company in advance, and they had dutifully entered when I would leave and return. So where was the leak? Good question. You would need all the data to hazard a guess. Think about it. What does it take to connect the dots and make realistic charges? Who had what data? How did they get it? How did they piece it together? And what might they do next? From a human point of view, it wasn't so surprising that the first credit card had been stolen. But the second card being stolen rang a very loud bell. 
How do you steal a credit card that the owner hasn't received yet? The presumption on the part of the fraudsters was that the new card had been delivered. Standard operating procedure. It was thievery without a doubt, but it went the extra mile to make it look like other people did it. Send the fraud investigators off in the wrong direction. And if there's one level of indirection, why not others? I felt pretty helpless and wondered what consumers could do about it, you and I, and felt like the answer was not much. Other than to participate fully when you get a notification of potential fraud, your personal experience just might crack the case. Yes, this was a cat and mouse game, all right, or rather, a card and mouse game? Forgive me. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, what happens to all that medical data we've accumulated over time and will be accumulating from here on out? I speak with Dr. Eric Schott, the Dean of Precision Medicine at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the founder and CEO of Semaphore. Then on Tech Nation Health, work on a vaccine to treat and potentially prevent Alzheimer's. Dr. A.J. Verma from United Neuroscience talks about their efforts, and Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the age wave. It's about to break. Over our lives, we've all had plenty of blood tests, x-rays, now genetic tests, and more. With technology, the information about our health status is growing quickly. I asked Eric Schott, the founder and CEO of Semaphore, what does that growth of information mean? The growth of information means, you know, first of all, the digital universe of data has grown at, with such speed, you know, that we're now up to, you know, a zettabyte of data, soon to be a yottabyte of data, which is so unimaginable. You mean Yoda large. like Yoda in Star yeah, Wars? Like Yoda in Star Wars. I had to look that one up because I had no idea what. Came forget gigabyte, yeah. Right, forget giga, you know, tera, petabytes. And what you saw in the field of medicine in particular is we went from petabytes uh, to zettabytes, skipped right over exabytes. Like nobody even heard of that. But so it's, so it's uh, such data built up around you. You mentioned some of the sources, but think about the iPhone uh, or other smart device you carry with you and the GPS coordinates and that those GPS coordinates are sampled at high frequency over time, and they link into geographic information systems that have things like 
what's the temperature and the pollen counts and the traffic flow and the electricity usage and on and on and on, just these really holistic profiles that can be built up around you and interpret you know, what's happening in the environment that you're existing in and how might it explain some of the um, things you have going on with you, whether it's I feel tired all the time or I'm having allergy problems or I uh, even even have abnormal test results that my physician can now be more and more accurately predicted you know, from this data that can be built up around you. So it means both better insights into what's happening with you and better ability to predict, uh, but it also means uh, removal of, of any kind of privacy because <laughs> All of this data built up around you uniquely identifies you. Any high-dimensional sets of data uh, that exist around you are very, very specific to you. You're the only one in this body walking around this way. Your pattern of uh, your walking speed, your gait, uh, what stores you visit, what foods you how purchase. How you use your phone, your smartphone. How you use your phone, how somebody fast else you are. Will, yeah. If you gave access to somebody else to use your phone or you gave it to your son saying, you know, I don't need this anymore, fella, immediately it would be very simple to analyze that it is not you using that phone. You got it. It is somebody else. You got it. Yeah. So it's uh, – you know, definitely a brave new world of sorts where we don't either have our heads around, you know, what all can this data How do you predict? sleep at night, Eric? <laughs> I just want to know. Yeah, this is yeah. what you think about all of this data. You, you kind of get over it because if you think about, like, one of my, like, heads up uh, I like to talk about are that, you know, DNA sequencing, we like to think of our DNA as very private, personal information because it gets to the depths of who we are and what made us. Uh, who we are, uh, but the technology moving so fast that you know maybe ten years time it'll be as easy to sequence your DNA as it is to take a photograph, and you know when that happens, any kind of expectation of privacy you have is is kind of gone, and we've experienced this before. So think of photographs of your face. Like I don't necessarily like the, the way I look, and I would like to hide. Talk to the Kardashians, things, right? <laughs> right? But you don't have a choice. Like the courts have ruled, like you, you're out in public. People can take your picture. There's nothing you can do to hide it. So I think as we get more comfortable with all this big information around us, just like we have with photographs, we'll just grow more comfortable that you know this data is easier for people to see now. Just like a picture, it's going to get used for. A myriad of purposes, and and the hope is that will benefit. If you've ever been in a in an, an international airport where you suddenly are you're getting off your plane, you're walking, 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 and then okay, here is the baggage claim, and you actually end up sort of single file through a number of places in parallel, and you realize you go through, they've taken your picture, yeah. <laughs> and before you get to your luggage, which could be right there, they've already said, who is this person? <laughs> I have a better one for you in Tokyo. As you're walking down the sidewalk in the shopping districts, of course, they're taking your, your picture as well. They're interpreting your age, your sex, how you're dressed. And the ads you see as you walk down the sidewalk are a function of what they assess from you further up the sidewalk. So you're actually in real time being presented with ads as you're walking down the business district based on the photographs that were taken of you, you know, 30 seconds ago. Pretty amazing. If, there, <laughs> if there was room for, like, 30 seconds of silence on air with that people thinking that we really right. it would be time now it would be time now but your semaphore genomics obviously you're working a lot around the area 
of what's in our gene and our genome and how that probably affects health care. Absolutely. You know, the changes in your DNA, both the constellation of changes you were born with that your parents uh, gave to you as part of uh, forming Looming larger the, every day. Right. <laughs> uh, but also mutations you incur through environmental exposures to, you know, toxins and sun and so on that those you know, changes in your DNA uh, are a very big determinant of your, your health, your wellness, your intelligence, your personality, and all the way to all the different uh, kinds of disease risk. Uh, but it's very, very complicated uh, because there's not like one change in your DNA that makes you smart or makes you very athletic. It's thousands and thousands of changes and interacting in complex ways with the environment. So we think a lot about how do we integrate all the information we know about the DNA with all the information we know about your health and the environment in which you live in. And we try to build sort of, uh, you know, almost think of like climate, you know, like climate models or quantitative finance or, or in theoretical physics. Like we're trying to build these predictive models based on all of those huge number of variables of information to see can we better predict, you know, sort of your, your health course trajectories. So are your ultimate clients individuals? Yeah, both uh, individual uh, patients because we can provide more meaningful um, insights and guidance around whatever health course trajectory they're on, uh, but also physician, you know, to bear all the actionable guidance we can give, you know, to physician around, you know, treatment choices or subtypes of disease and so on. We can provide that information to physicians to help better diagnose and treat the patients. Okay, so let's say we'll just start with the physicians because they're treating people. Sometimes, frankly, they feel very isolated. You know, yes. they gotta they try to treat this, but now they've got one that is a little off the charts. You know, and they're trying to consult with friends. They're trying to they do, Google it. They Google they it. Do Google they it. They Google it like you do, and they need more information. That information is that general, or is that specific to their patient? It's both, and it's a great point of you know. So if, remember, I said zettabyte worth of data in the digital universe, soon to be a yottabyte. A physician, no human, has the ability to hold all of what that information says in their head. Like we need mathematical models, representations of our knowledge and understanding that we can query with computers. Uh, that's the whole success of a Google, a search engine. You can you know, type it in and you get lots of meaningful stuff back. But in this case, it's sort of a, a both a general, like what are the underpinnings of human uh, diseases, what tissues are affected, what are the molecular makeup of that, and so on, but then very highly personalized because there may be, take Alzheimer's disease or heart disease, there may be a hundred different you know, causes or pathways at play that may be affected in you that lead to your heart disease, but completely different ones that affect another person in the same uh, same disease, but a, di a different path, a different cause. So how you're treated uh, then matters what, what molecularly inside of you has been disrupted, and we have to fix that disruption. Well, you have to know what that is. So that's a very personalized, like you may have a specific cause uh, you know, that's very unique to you that uh, isn't in the standard of care uh, population that a physician sees. 
And a physician won't know that because they don't have that information. So they're just making a, a decision based on the population that they know. So it's, it is about ultimately personalizing in a precise way where the precision medicine comes from is we want to personalize in a way that's highly accurate, is taking all the information into account and giving, again, the most actionable guidance on what you should do to you know, correct, correct the problem. So, of course, then we're talking about a, an increased or a higher level of partnership between the patient and the doctor. You know, the doctor needs the data from the patient to start working through that. Yeah, yeah you got it. And that was one of the you know, early pilots we did that really sold me on, you know, that this partnership is, is critical. As we, you know, developed an asthma app, we were one of the first... Uh, institutions to develop on top of health kit research kit with Apple and we focused on asthma and it was all about how do we um, engage patient in their normal life journey uh, with asthma to learn more about the specific specifics of their condition so if you think of you know the number of times you go even to a doctor with asthma maybe once or twice or three times a year and in that visit, you talk to the doctor maybe for five minutes. <laughs> like, what can the doctor possibly learn in that short period of time? Um, you know, very little unless you have biomarkers that are way outside the norm. Then they can flag that. So what we did is said, okay, let's engage patient electronically. Uh, we'll consent them in ways that allows us to collect information on them. We'll provide that information back to them. Uh, and what it allowed us to do was to get... Uh, how many exacerbations did you have over the last month? What were the causes of those exacerbations? How many times did you puff on your maintenance inhaler, on your rescue inhaler? When you had an exacerbation, what was the temperature, the pollen counts, the pollution levels? What were your activity levels? What, what was your sleep like? So you now have this really longitudinal, high-density, high-dimensional um, characterization of what's going on in that patient that when we started presenting that back to a physician in the form of a dashboard so that when the patient goes to the physician, they show this dashboard of everything that's been happening with their condition over the last, since their last visit. And the physician in 15 seconds can see, holy cow, you've had 20 exacerbations when uh, the temperature pollen counts were like this and, and your maintenance inhaler wasn't working. Like you need to, you should have uh, come in. In fact, they were so impressed by that. They said, is there any way you can start pushing this up into the medical record so I don't have to wait for that patient to come in uh, for their next visit? I can reach out to them because I know if they puffed 10 times on their inhaler in a day, they need to come see me like something's wrong. So it is, uh, it's using technology, you know, the, these advanced smart devices and the, the more engaging tools to help bring physician and patient closer together and to help them both leverage the data that can be aggregated on an in individual to make more informed decisions. Truly next-gen healthcare. Next-gen healthcare, for sure. Uh, you know, I have to say that this has to do with when things aren't right. <laughs> this isn't like if everything's good and you're going along and everything's fine, just whatever is has been collected about you, we just don't want to lose it because it may become relevant later, but you don't need to move through this integrated data cloud all the time if everything's fine. Well, it's, a, it's one of the things we hope to change is this, this idea 
in medicine today, we treat diseases as very black and white. It's either you're sick or you're not sick. And that, as we know, is, is not true, right? Diseases occur on a continuum, a spectrum, and you're either always moving towards that state or you're in a well state and you're able to resist uh, uh, getting those diseases. But the only way you can track something like that is to not be coming in in an acute oh, rats, state of distress. Oh, I knew distress. you were going to say that. <laughs> you know? I so, so even when you think you're well, like just again, even with well individuals, if you can well, if you can look at information around those well individuals and map out what trajectory are you really on? Are you on a trajectory that's going to resist all of these common diseases that plague a lot of us, or are you on a trajectory that's that's going to be catastrophic in five years' time? Like if you do not bounce off that path, you're going to have lots of problems. Well, both the well individuals want to know, am I, not only am I on a good path, but how do I stay on that path? Like what are the right kinds of interventions? Like what are the right kinds of foods or exercises or what drugs shouldn't I take because I'm more sensitive, I'm going to have an adverse event? Like all of that information uh, can be leveraged to say, how do you maintain a, a more well, more robust uh, state of wellness? So I think it applies to both. Like they're all in this continuum and, and the push has to be, how do we get more probabilistic in our understanding of the, these diseases, not black and white, binary, as if you just one day had a heart attack and nobody saw that coming? <laughs> you know, we know that's not true. One event that happens, uh, and it's a, an event over months, one event that happens to many women and sometimes multiple times in the course of their lives is pregnancy. And at the moment you become pregnant, everything changes. You got, you got baby on board. And we really start that journey uh, before you're pregnant. And that's uh, everything from um, assessing your current state of wellness. So what are, what are you at risk of even before you become pregnant of complications that can happen in pregnancy? So think gestational diabetes preeclampsia, preterm birth, perinatal depression, all sorts of things can happen during your pregnancy. And if you better understand that risk at the beginning, you can better manage uh, that journey through, through its course. Um, we also start with the genetics. Um, like what are you, as a mom and your reproductive health partner, what are you at high risk of passing on to your offspring um, that would be catastrophic. So think of things like uh, Tay-Sachs uh, disease or cystic fibrosis, you know, these kinds of uh, diseases that if you knew you were at high risk, you would, um, you know, maybe uh, do in vitro options. fertilization. Yeah. You would say, okay, I'm going to uh, have these embryos fertilized and I'm going to pick ones that don't aren't going to pass this disease on. Um, once you're pregnant, your, uh, you know, there's non-invasive prenatal testing that, that we do. And again, our whole aim is, you know, can we help um, the woman kind of manage that journey, the information around her, and again, provide better insights into the risks uh, that, that she'll be um, exposed to through, the, through that course. Uh, and then even once the baby's born, you know, you have uh, depression-related uh, issues that can arise, and there are even issues within the unborn child, or the, I'm sorry, the, born, the newly born child. Uh, so think of uh, rare disorders uh, that sometimes don't manifest until you're one or two. If you could detect those at birth, there's some conditions where if you knew them at birth, you could give uh, an intervention that would lead to a normal life. 
um, if they go one to two years when it clinically manifests, you've lost 20 IQ points and you're never getting those points back. Like, so just being able to test at birth to say, you know, do, does my child have any condition that can be treated from day one? Um, like those are the sorts of things that this technology is bringing to bear on, on that pregnancy journey. Let's say we have a patient all signed up, really wants to do this. Are we seeing pushback from doctors? Absolutely. So we, it, it, it's, a, it's a mix today. Uh, some of the things like the carrier screening I mentioned at the beginning, uh, which you should be getting before you're becoming pregnant, and the non-invasive prenatal testing, those are kind of standard of care. Uh, they very rapidly became standard of care. You know, probably three or four years ago, the standard of care for carrier screening was like four to eight uh, diseases that the uh, professional bodies recommended. Uh, you know, and today we're testing for, for hundreds, you know, like it's moved really fast. Uh, but that's become rapidly standard of care because it's had such a positive impact on reproductive health choices. Uh, but things like newborn screening definitely push back on, you know, a controversy around, um, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Like, what are the risks that somebody uh, gets in having that information generated um, if they're tested for a condition where you don't know exactly what to do? It creates anxiety. It creates stress. Um, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And so there's uh, lots of studies we and others are running to try to help figure out. Uh, but what I feel like is we can't have our head in the sand and pretend like this isn't happening. Like we, we have to engage, um, you know, individuals in studies. We have to engage broader societies, legislators, regulatory bodies. Like we all have to kind of figure this out together. Uh, but you're not going to stop it. Like it's uh, you mentioned 23andMe Ancestry. Like there are these consumer-facing, direct-to-consumer efforts where, you know, there's no regulatory body involved. It's, you know, you, you as consumer can decide you want that information and you can submit that up to various web pages and they'll give you interpretations. Like we, we have to, like that waves here and it's, you have to figure out how to ride it or maybe help guide it. Uh, but the, so that, that's how we view it. And the, the pushback we get is, okay, well, let's work with you. Let's do, carry out the right kind of study uh, or let's restrict what we report back to only things where we can do something about it. So we're not going to test you for are you at high risk of developing early onset Alzheimer's? Because as a baby, what are you going to do about that information? Um, but if you have a G6PD deficiency, um, knowing that at birth, you, all you have to do is change your diet and you won't get any of the clinical uh, effects from that, from that deficiency, like something that simple. It's not tested for in, in, in newborn screening panels at the state level. Like, why wouldn't you want to know that information? So a lot of it is giving actionable information to the physician where they know what to do. And they can guide the patient on, on what they can do. Well, Eric, I could talk to you for about 10 years. We don't have that kind of time. <laughs> and, I'm sorry if I was rambling on. No, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I'm catching I'm catching it. I'm catching what you're saying here. Uh, but but what, you're lo- what we're looking at here is a whole tsunami of information. Tsunami and, is the right and, word. <laughs> and how it interrelates and how we're supposed to relate to it and what we can do and all of that. It's all coming at us. You know, I've been saying it's like it's coming at us, but it's finally here. It's here. It's really here. So I do hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Keep us updated. Well, thank you.
Eric Schott is the founder and CEO of Semaphore. More information is available at semaphore.com. That's S-E-M-A, Sema, and the number four, semaphore.com. You're listening to Tech Nation. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the age wave. What does it mean and who's writing it? Stay with us. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. We all have the expectation that modern medicine will continue to march forward, addressing the conditions we face at every age, now and in the future. And why not? By gathering statistics from the years 2000 through 2014, the CDC found that people were living longer because major challenges attributed to aging are being successfully addressed. They're all familiar to you. Stroke, heart attack, pneumonia, and the flu. What used to be life-threatening can now be faced down with medical care, both in the moment and ongoing. One simple example, over 200,000 Americans are living full lives with heart pacemakers. It's simply become a routine matter of life. But not all medical conditions associated with aging have had such success. The CDC also tells us that 5 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease. Today, we'll look at an approach to treating Alzheimer's in an effort not simply intended to be curative, but potentially preventative. Also unusual, it's a vaccine. 
Then, to put it all in context, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will tell us about a new term, the age wave. What does that mean, and what do we know? Nearly everyone who listens to this interview has been vaccinated, one way or another, usually starting when we're very young. But over all that time, it's important to know that our traditional idea of vaccines has been changing. I asked Dr. A.J. Verma, the chief medical officer of United Neuroscience, what are vaccines today? Great question. I think everybody is familiar with our, you know, granddad's vaccine, if you will, the uh, the old, you know, either active viruses or inactivated viruses or little bits of them. You know, the, these days we really um, look at this as immunotherapy, as engineered immunotherapy, where we can Jumping target up your immune system. Yep. But you got to do that carefully. The immune system has many sides to it that can do good as well as harm. And obviously, when you're trying to fight off a virus or a cancer, you want to, you know, beat the heck out of it and throw all you got at it. But it may be possible to use the vaccine approach to treat a whole host of other diseases that are inside you. Bad pathologies that creep up as we age, as we, you know, get older and different systems wear down. But you have to be much more gentle with the immune system when you go after those because you don't want all the friendly fire. You don't want the damage that the immune system might do to a virus to happen to a normal organ. So that's been the trick, is how to get vaccines to be so controllable. Slow movers. Well, it could be slow or just the right movers. Right the immune movers. system has many arms to it. There are antibodies. There are you know, different types of cells we activate. Now we know enough about them to just do this arm and not that arm. That hasn't been possible before. And I think that's been the big breakthrough that um, United Neuroscience is trying to capitalize on. We have a technology that's been well worked out in animal health. So that's a big advantage for us. We know it's safe. We know it's effective. It can treat not only viral infections in animal um, applications, but also some endogenous disorders. Now, what's endogenous? Endogenous means something inside you already. A virus comes and infects you from the outside. Certain things in your body build up that are endogenously, uh, high cholesterol levels that will eventually give you some heart problems unless you check them. Maybe some aggregated, misfolded proteins that your body doesn't clear out. If they build up over time, they may actually damage brain cells. So, um, you may have too much of a, a pain hormone that's causing you migraines all the time. We can just lower it gently with an antibody, which is happening right now, actually. There's a bunch of antibodies about to be approved for that. You know, why can't we do that with a vaccine? Have you make your own antibody? It's just been how do we control that and get it right and turn that, this practice into a real, a real drug that can be used safely, you know, reversibly. Um, that's what I find exciting. It's a huge challenge, but it's, uh, I think we're there, actually, from, from all the learnings we've had in other areas. Now, you're united neuroscience. You're not focusing on cholesterol. You're focusing on the brain. Yes, yes. You know, um, we've done really well, I think, actually, in medicine over the last 100 years, if you look at where we are with cancer, we're actually making some significant progress. Heart disease, we're all living longer. Uh, we've wiped out a lot of infections. Um, we haven't taken care of some problems with the brain. And in, in a way, all those other advances are compounding the problem <laughs> that we have left with the brain because now people are living to an older age where they will get more Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. So unless we deal with these problems... You know, this will be a major calamity. Alzheimer's, you know, itself is so prevalent now 
Um, if you're over 65, you have about a 1 in 10, maybe 1 in 8 chance of getting Alzheimer's. If you're over 85, it's close to like 1 out of 2 or 1 out of 3. And you better get to work. Exactly. And like this is our generation. <laughs> this is bo- our boomy, problem. The <laughs> baby boom generation is just coming right up on those We've numbers. got to deal with this. And I think in general, neuro diseases, uh, this is the age that we address them. One out of six people in the world have some kind of neuro problem. And that's what makes us human is our brain. So this is probably the biggest challenge I think we have this, in this century. If we don't do something about it, just Alzheimer's alone, you know, many world economies will be crippled by the middle of the century because much of the third world is experiencing the same benefits that the Western world went through in like the 50s and 60s where we have a lot more nutrition and, you know, public health. So in countries like India and China, people are living much longer. So they're going to have a massive explosion of, you know, Alzheimer's and some of these neurodegenerative diseases. So we have to do something about this. There's, there's no other choice. Now, what are you working on for your first objective? Well, um, we are fortunate in that we have a platform technology. We have a way to... That means it can be used in many different ways. That's correct. That means we can instruct the body to make defenses against a variety of different targets. So we can choose those targets. We can be um, you know, very uh, forward-looking and be imaginative. Or we can see, take lessons from what other, others are doing in the field. What looks like it's working? Where are we making a dent? Now, can we adopt the advances there to a vaccine platform, which has, you know, a lot of benefits for today? You know, we're living in such a great time for um, biomedical advances. We have, uh, um, we can replace genes. We can do gene therapy. We can take care of RNA diseases with what we call, you know, RNA drugs, um, uh, antisense drugs. We have monoclonal antibodies, which are probably the supreme drug right now as far as being very targeted, very efficient. But they're, they come at a big cost. They're not accessible to most of the people that actually need them. And I, I'm really you know, excited about the challenge to bring innovations that actually make medicines more pragmatic. You know, we put a supercomputer in everybody's hands now with a, with a, <laughs> a smartphone, smartphone, right? Yeah. We need to start thinking like that. How can we you know, get the best minds to innovate to make medicines cheaper, make them more pragmatic, more affordable. We actually want to reach the people that needs, need these medications. And so I'm particularly enamored by the vaccine approach because that's one medicine that everybody's had, as you said. They work. They're wonderful at preventing disease. They're great to be used in combination therapy. It's just how do we do it safely to address non-infectious diseases? That's been the challenge. What's your first target? Well... Um, our first target, believe it or not, started in animal health. And uh, this platform was worked out in, uh, by our parent company in uh, agricultural uh, applications. So it's currently used to vaccinate about a quarter of the world's pigs. There's over 3 billion doses that have been sold. And it's mainly used for a viral disease, for foot and mouth disease. If the effects wear off, uh, it can be reversible even because of the way we, our platform works. You know, that really excited me. Like, God, if you can regulate a biology reversibly with a vaccine approach, there's no end to what you could do with with a vaccine approach. Now, about 20 years ago, this idea of trying to use a vaccine to treat Alzheimer's disease was actually uh, tried. Back then, uh, we didn't know how to control each arm of the immune system, you know, very well. And what was observed was while the approach worked in animals— 
it looked promising early on in clinical development. They did run into some safety problems where the, the immune response that was unleashed did attack the brain itself. And about 6% of the people had uh, what we call meningoencephalitis. And so the whole effort had to be stopped. Um, now, mind you, some people, even though they stopped being dosed, did fare pretty well compared to what, they might, what you might expect. And at autopsy, uh, several of them you know, showed uh, evidence of amyloid being cleared from the brain. So the idea was that this could work if we could just get around the safety issue. And what, what our parent company did was figure out how to use a vaccine approach and just activate one arm of the immune system. And it does it by sort of fooling the immune system into thinking you have an infection on board when you really don't. We actually make these little peptides, these little bits of, of proteins that sort of kind of look like pathogens that all humans are exposed to, whether it's measles or something else. It, but they're engineered. They're artificial. So your immune system gets tricked. Oh, there's something there that I've got to go after and mount a big response. But when they go and interrogate it, there really isn't <laughs> the, the organism oh, that was thinking. You tricked me there. Okay? Yeah. But in the process, by what we've attached to this construct, we, we get the immune system to make lots of antibodies against whatever we've attached to this, this fake <laughs> immunogen, if you will. And that seems to work. And it seems to be safe. It doesn't launch what we call this cytotoxic T-cell response, which is what is the autoimmunity that you see in multiple sclerosis and lupus and a bunch of other diseases. So the police got a call. They went out to see, <laughs> oh, these, we know these guys. Yeah, don't worry about it. In the meantime, it launched the antibodies. Right. And, and because it doesn't really rile up the immune system in a severe way like other vaccines would, we don't leave a permanent memory, meaning this is not like a one and done and lifelong, now you have this immunity. So the, the, we activate what's called the B cell arm of the immune system. And when you do that, those B cells proliferate and they die out over time. So after vaccinating someone and getting their antibodies level, if we stop dosing, those levels will come back down over about you know, eight months to a year. Now, if we boost, we can get it right back up again. So now we can sculpt the response and keep it elevated as long as we want, depending on which disease and what we want to. So it's a drug. And we anticipate um, after priming people in their first year, which is really a, a dose. At, these, are, these are flu shots right in your arm, just like you'd get a muscle flu shot. At baseline, one month and three months. And then after that, we see our antibody levels rise around four months, let's say. And then they gently start to come down. But if we boost people along the way, we can keep it up. And so we're testing various boost dosing frequencies like that. And um, you know, so far it seems to be safe. We seem to be able to get good antibodies. We think eventually when, if we are successful and this becomes a drug, this will probably be uh, like an annual booster. So once a year you just re, <laughs> you know, reboost up your levels and you monitor it just like you'd monitor cholesterol or some other biomarker. And hopefully it'll ward off disease. Now we have to actually prove this in early disease first. But our real hope is that we can do that. It'll be safe and more pragmatic so that we can actually move to prevention. Now, it's, what are the antibodies doing with respect to Alzheimer's? Well, it looks like, um, so antibodies can neutralize some target that you aim them at. And we're used to them aiming at viruses and toxins and so on. That's what traditional vaccines do. It looks like uh, what we're learning about neurodegeneration is that some normal proteins that do something good in your body your whole life, 
late in life in the brain, they tend to misfold and accumulate as little aggregates that for some reason in the old age, the brain has a harder time clearing out. Now, as they accumulate, they really, um, these proteins, when, they, when I say they become misfolded, imagine a protein like a necklace that then if you scrunch it together, it can, it can have different shapes and show different sides of it. Um, some of the parts of the protein that are being shown in these aggregates are new. They're not there throughout your life. So I actually look at them as, as sort of neoantigens, meaning it's something new that your body never saw before. So you might expect your immune system to go and take care of it. Because yeah. that's actually what, what your immune system does when it sees things like that. But mind you, this is happening in a time when you're aging. Your immune system's weakening a bit. And so maybe it doesn't do so well in some people. And maybe it does in other people. It could be that the immune system's actually taking care of this all the time in those people that don't get Alzheimer's. People forget that most people don't get Alzheimer's. And so what can we learn from them to help you know, the less fortunate? Now, it turns out that um, the leading candidate, um, the leading antibody in the field is something called aducanumab being developed by Biogen and Neuroimmune. That actually comes from an individual that somehow happened to have high levels of antibodies endogenously. And it, did not have Alzheimer's. You know, we don't know the identity of the subject, but the, the but we're, I think this is a healthy subject that did very well. That's why the, the, the person was studied. But lo and behold, they happen to have high levels of these antibodies. So that's, where, that's the source of the drug, actually. It was actually engineered from such a person. This is a Henrietta Lacks story. It's, it's fascinating. Only it's, only it's uh, an antibody here. Yes. So it's a, it's a wonderful piece of science. But it makes you wonder, hey, is this happening all the time? You know, is your body immunizing itself against these diseases? And that's why some people don't get ill. Now, mind you, most of the vaccinations we get in life are not from a vaccine that we get at the doctor's. It's just from getting the flu or the cold or experiences in life. We're getting vaccinated all the time from the stuff that we're exposed to. And our immune system's learning. Right. And so really, in a, in a snapshot, we're trying to teach the immune system how to learn better with a vaccine. That's really what vaccines do. They prepare you. <laughs> they get you ready for the real war that's, you know, that you have to fight. And... Uh, so that's, in a nutshell, our approach. We think that these misfolded proteins are something that you should get rid of in, in late life, and we can train the immune system to do it. Now, is it just one bad thing? You know, everybody's focusing on beta amyloid. Um, it's clear that that's a target from the genetics. Those people that happen to have certain mutations will get Alzheimer's if they have those particular mutations. But that may be the only thing, that, that may be what kicks off the whole, you know, fire. That may be the kindling, basically. But later on in disease, there may be other pathologies. Uh, tau aggregation has been identified as another one, uh, neuroinflammation. So we may need to treat multiple targets. And that's something we're very excited about at United Neuroscience because we're working on combination therapies against multiple misfolded proteins, against not only amyloid but alpha-synuclein, tau. So we have a combo vaccine with all three, for example. It's like the adult MMR. So imagine when you're 45... You know, getting a combo You're vaccine. vaccinated again. We thought we were done when we were kids. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then that keeps you, you know, with, with, when you were kids, it was against these viruses and exogenous things. But later in life, maybe there's endogenous things that we can vaccinate against. So we've, we were excited about this approach. Well, AJ, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you come back and talk to us again. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. A.J. Verma is the Chief Medical Officer of United Neuroscience. More information is available at unitedneuroscience.com.
whether it's Alzheimer's or any number of diseases and conditions, I've started hearing a new term, the age wave. I asked Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft, what does that mean? Yeah, I think the term age wave was coined by my friend Ken Dykewald, who is sort of an expert at looking at the lens of, of aging, where it is and, and where it's heading and its implications. And uh, to the point of baby boomers are now reaching age 65 and beyond. I think it's, it's about a quarter have already reached it, and many more are getting to that point. Um, and Ken often makes the point that uh, of those over age 65 who've ever lived to over 65, two-thirds are alive today. And that is only growing, <laughs> not necessarily exponentially, but... They didn't make 65. Exactly. And many who are 65 don't think of themselves as old. That might, might used to have been the old number because it was sort of picked out in the 1880s by, by Bismarck as sort of the age for uh, actuarial tables when folks would start to get uh, pensions. But at, at that point in the 1880s... Uh, uh, you know, the average life expectancy was still, you know, mid-40s. So we need to potentially, as technology evolves, our ability to age smarter and live better, you know, what is old? Is that just a measure of, of months on a calendar or parts of our biology? And then what are the implications as we have this age wave coming in terms of the marketplace, society, uh, how we service and um, treat the older population and connect them to the younger. Lots of implications there as, as our society gets older. Well, it seems to me if they're living longer and longer and longer, we don't have a lot of scientific data for a whole big group of people that live that long. Is that true? Well, it takes a long time to do the clinical trials. <laughs> yeah, and then you keep losing people. And that we was don't, a bad joke. Sure. <laughs> and even in medical school, uh, you know, where I went at Stanford and most places, there's very little focus on, let's say, gerontology, the study or the care of the aged, when most of our medical dollars uh, is focused on the last few years of life. And in fact, there's a sh probably a shortage of, of, of gerontologists. And, and most internists uh, are having to focus on that population. So we have a real unmet need, and that doesn't just give, come to the, the area of care. Remembering that many of the diseases that we're spending our time and money on are diseases of aging. When folks only lived to 40, they didn't get dementia or heart disease or advanced type 2 diabetes. Um, so we end up in an era of aged diseases, and we need new ways to approach them. We have a very youth-focused society, when in fact, uh, the, the largest market are folks over, let's say, age 50 in terms of, of buying products. And so there's an opportunity to, uh, for entrepreneurs out there to, to service that population. Um, you know, it's, I think, over 50% of personal care products are bought by folks over 50, over-the-counter drugs, lab tests, surgeries, health club memberships. And it can't just be... Over 50? Yeah. And These are baby boomers. Baby boomers are... I'm sorry, they're part of the age wave. <laughs> <laughs> Not babies anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think that means there's opportunities to think about not just sort of going to the gym, staying healthy, uh, staying on top of medications, but thinking about how do we design our homes and our society to let folks, quote-unquote, age in place. No one wants our parent or ourselves to end up in a, quote-unquote, traditional nursing home. How can we use everything from the power of the Internet of Things and the ability to connect and Skype with your grandmother or a sensor in the mattress or in the coffee machine to tell what activities are happening in the home to be proactive? Wearable devices we've talked about on the show uh, can track your steps, but now can be used to predict who's likely to have a fall in the next few months. So we can use both the integration of data and new services to keep folks 
aging in place, maybe helping them with their uh, robots do their laundry or pick up their socks. I but, need that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but also to lend that social connection. Many folks get more socially isolated, and social isolation can be as dangerous as a two-pack-a-day smoking habit in terms of health outcomes. So lots of opportunity for entrepreneurs and services from from medical and hospital and social to get out of the bucket of just let's uh, market to the young. And I have to say, I like the orientation of what are the things that we can do which will better the lives of those, not just worry about could they be unhealthy, do we have something to fix them, do we have a drug, a treatment, a surgery, whatever, but given everything else, what can we do to make their lives more enjoyable uh, and uh, all the things that make life worth living. And, and meaningful and being connected to friends and family. We also, with the age wave, have a, an increasing and very scary increasing incidence of, of Alzheimer's and memory issues. And uh, that's something, whether you're Ronald Reagan uh, or Margaret Thatcher, who had incredible medical care, still developed. So it's pretty indiscriminate. And there, of course, there's a lot of new work focusing on hopefully new ways to pick it up early, maybe even with early diagnostics, do interventions like taking a statin for the brain or understanding which markers beyond our gene genealogy impact risk for, for memory issues like Alzheimer's and then potentially provide new services. We're seeing here in San Francisco uh, a, a company called Honor, which is a bit of a, almost, I like to think of it, of an Uber for home care. Many folks have issues uh, taking th care of their older family members. Now there are platforms like that one that can enable you to find caregivers. Others are being developed in the United Kingdom to, when they bring a caregiver in the home, to collect data in new ways, their activities of daily living, mental states, to, again, be proactive and pick up a problem early or to bring resources to that older person's home to to meet their needs. And we've talked about Google Maps and, and ways for our general health, but we all want to have our sort of own healthcare concierge. We all may age at different rates and have different issues from sore joints uh, to memory issues to a whole host of elements. We need to individualize our care and bring it to the uberization of health and aging. In fact, Uber themselves has done pilots where you can press a button on the app and bring a, a nurse to give you a vaccine. We're seeing Uber and Lyft now provide services to bring anybody who has difficulty getting to a clinic, and many older uh, individuals may have trouble driving. So this ability to connect dots and for entrepreneurs and systems to provide services to older populations, I think, is going to continue to explode. And now, even with some of the platforms, you don't even have to have a smartphone. You can use your old dial-up phone, rotary phone, to, to call an Uber Lyft to get you to your clinic or to the grocery store. Well, for anybody who lives alone, there's always this problem of you're living alone. Nobody notices that you're declining or that you fell or and hit your head so you can't get up. There are many, many times when you're really, truly alone. So it does help for the... Uh, for the age wave, but it helps for anyone in a in a situation where nobody might find them. And uh, there was, we have lots of instances where uh, it could be very good to have that kind of technology. And no one wants to be an inspector gadget and have to have lots of devices in a censored home that requires a PhD in electrical engineering to set up. What's getting interesting now is our consumer devices, our, our smartwatches, can potentially tell when someone's had a fall and call their grandchild or uh, Wi-Fi has been re-engineered by MIT professors and teams to pick up vital signs and sleep patterns so we could see if someone has a fall or has changes in behavior that, again, can enable someone who's 
isolated or alone to get help or bring help when they don't even know they need it. And it's okay that I sit in my red chair with the ottoman and watch TV for a really long time. I'm just doing a marathon on. <laughs> Binge watching is good, but Binge watching. It's not, I'm not ill. I'm not ill. So I have to program that in. One last element that's certainly often associated with an older population is sometimes over-medication, polypharmacy. Um, about 45% of Americans over 65 are on five or more medications. So it's often difficult to track them, even if you're on top of your game. So many many uh, platforms are evolving to be ways to improve adherence, as we call it, whether it's a connected pill bottle that will text you or your doctor or your grandson if you haven't taken your important, let's say, blood thinner, um, all the way to companies like PillPack that would deliver a set of medications for the day. Amazon recently acquired that company. Um, I'm developing a technology to sort of 3D print your own personalized polypill. I call them IntelliMed. So every day when you wake up, potentially you'd print your combination of medications based on how you slept or your blood pressure or a blood level. So I think there's a lot of unmet needs and a lot of interesting solutions from the medical side to the social side to just the activities of daily living that can help support our aging population. So literally, being a, you know, if you're 100, we want to focus on health span, not just lifespan. You're able to walk, talk, get around, use the toilet, contribute to society. Date. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's whole new whole There's new always there. hope. Swipe left, swipe right. Um, and think about the implications as we, you know, I've got a 204-year-old. They hopefully will live easily past 100. What's the implications for careers, for insurance, for marriage? Uh, many of these things are set to shift. There's lots of debate. You know, can we really live past 120 Lots of folks working on the biology and the and the physics and the pharmacy of that. But lots of implications beyond just the age as a number. Well, I know we'll watch this space. So thanks so much, Daniel. See you in the future. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2018 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.